Matthew chapter 12, we're looking at the uh, conflicts that Jesus had on the Temple Mount. He is right here on this Temple Mount, and it is Tuesday of uh, the last week, and he's going to have some, what we'd say, debates, uh, some conflicts. Uh, it's going to get positive as we go into this part tonight, uh, as we look through this. At the top of the page, uh, I've got four things written down there. The first one we looked at last week was uh, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders challenged Jesus' authority. That would be the first, the first challenge. And they said, by what authority do you do these things? And one of those things would probably be him coming in this eastern gate like a royal procession, fulfilling scripture on a donkey, being welcomed like a king. And, uh, and he came in. And interesting, again, like we said, he came in, and they're all welcomed like a king. And he went up to the Temple Mount. And, and nothing happened. I mean, they should have followed through and, and, and d- have done something. And then he comes back the next day after having cursed the fig tree and then drives the money changers out of the court of the Gentiles. Now, this is the Dome of the Rock, obviously, right there. But in front of that, if that, that would be the, where the temple stood, in front of that would have been the holy place and the outer court and then the court of the Jewish men, the court of the Jewish women. But then on the sides here and also on the other side would have been the court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles, like Alexander the Great, had come in. You could go so close and worship. Uh, but the Jews had filled that up with uh, Targets and Walmarts and, you know, you know, quick trips and things to, uh, not, not real, that's being facetious there, but markets to uh, sell and make money on the Gentiles, not the Gentiles, but the Jews coming in. Uh, they were supposed to bring their sacrifices, but they'd, they'd have to be approved, and then in the process of being approved, they'd be disapproved, but you could buy one of ours. It's like, it'd be like you could bring your own hot dogs, you bring your own lunch to the ball game, but we'll have to inspect it before you bring it in. It's like, ah, no, this isn't good enough. You'll have to throw that away, but you could buy one of our hot dogs here, and you understand the price of a hot dog at, at Hy-Vee in the, in, the, in the meat counter and a price of a hot dog at the ball game completely different. Well, that was no different, and they were making crazy money. Jesus just came in, turned those tables over, and drove them out, and that's when they says, by what authority do you do these things? And the, the Palm Sunday and the cleaning of the temple, and Jesus says, well, let me ask you about John. By what authority did, uh, who was John? Was he sent by God, or was he just a man? And they began to realize they can't answer that question, because if they say he's from God, why didn't you listen to him? And John says, Jesus was coming. He's the one who was his forerunner. So if you believe John, then why are you questioning me? I'm just doing what John said. Well, they didn't accept John. uh, But if they say they didn't accept John, the public accepted John, because that's where everybody, if nobody had gone to a Billy Graham crusade, Billy Graham wouldn't have had a ministry. And if John the Baptist didn't have anybody getting baptized in the Jordan River, just some old guy out there just preaching. It's like just a crazy... Crazy man, and nothing, but everything. There's, he's recorded by Josephus. He made an impact in history. So there were people out here, and these people were on the Temple Mount who had gone out and met John and were looking for this Lord. And so if they say John is not from God, they're going to upset the people. So they, they can't answer the question. They say, we can't answer your question. Jesus says, well, then, I'm not going to answer your question either for the same reason. Uh, especially since John the Baptist identified him. That's that first one. Then we went to the second one. The Herodians and the Pharisees came together, and the Herodians, uh, they would be pro-Rome. They would accept the uh, uh, 
uh, the, the, the Herods that Rome had set up, and then uh, coming with them, uh, along with the Herodians, uh, the, the Pharisees, uh, who were the conservatives. They would ha- want to have only Jewish leadership, so they would be, in a sense, anti-Rome, and they joined together. I mean, they do not, they, that would be like the Biden administration and the Trump administration getting together to ask some, well, Ron DeSantis a question. It's like, they, they don't agree with each other, but we definitely don't want DeSantis getting involved. So they're going to join together. And so not in agreement, but they come and ask him a question, should we pay taxes? And this is going to set Jesus, Jesus going to, it's a lose-lose question. If he says, no, don't give Rome the Jewish money. Well, now he's siding with the, the Pharisees, but he's going to help instigate the Jewish wars. If he says, yes, pay Roman taxes, well, he's, he's going to upset the other side. So it's going to be, uh, he can't answer that question. And that's when he flips out, they, they give me a coin, and he makes the great statement, give to God what is God, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and uh, that ends the debate. And it's real interesting because, as we said, if, if we got those coins a little more details on the notes here tonight. Uh, I forgot to put these online. I forgot to hook my notes up online before we came up here. Uh, one of the things that it says on the coin, either coin that you're going to use, it, it says on the coin that they had on the Temple Mount, uh, it says Tiberius Caesar, the son of the divine Augustus, which is a name for you know, the, the enlightened one, the holy one, the who God, who is God? So he's the son of Augustus, Caesar Augustus, and he himself now is the Augustus. So the coin says Caesar is God on it. If it's that first coin that we were talking about that was minted in Gaul, or the one that's minted in uh, Antioch, the next one, that says on one side it says Tiberius Augustus Caesar. So on the first side, uh, the, the front side, it's Tiberius, the reigning emperor at that time, Tiberius Augustus, which means again, God, Caesar, and then on the back, it's a picture of Caesar Augustus himself, and that inscription says around there, God Augustus Caesar. So they're flipping coins around there on the Temple Mount, and they've got the Jews, have them up there with the Roman image on it, the Roman emperor's image on it, saying he's God. And so Jesus kind of calls that to account and asks them, you know, just give back to Caesar what he wants, but give to God what is his. And that leads us to... uh, the uh well i did skip one that's the number one and number two uh you're going to have one two three we'll say four challenges this first challenge by what authority this one shall we give caesar money right in here jesus tells the parable of the vineyard which is again they they beat up all the messengers that were he's supposed to be bringing the the collecting the taxes or the rent from the vineyard uh, the man owns the vineyard, and they kept refusing to pay it. They kept beating up the messengers. Finally, he sends his son. And if you remember, that's kind of a ridiculous parable because everything's extreme. They, they will not send the, the money, but the man keeps sending servants to collect the money. And finally, after all of his servants getting beaten up or killed or executed, he sends his son and says, oh, surely they'll, they'll respect my son. I mean, there's no logic to it except that this vineyard, these people owe rent, or in this case they owe homage obedience to god and he's sending someone to try and get them to respond and they won't and then he asks the question you know what's going to happen they're going to be destroyed you're going to be destroyed and the people on the temple mount and the the sadducees the pharisees the elites 
the rulers, they all knew he was speaking against the elites, the rulership. He was speaking against them, and they knew. Now, again, earlier the parables that Jesus told was concealing the truth. This was a parable that pulled the curtain back and revealed the truth. It's like, you are the problem. Your leadership is the problem. And they're all standing there, exposed to the people that they are uh, keeping the people from God. So this was a conflict with the whose authority, the second conflict, the coins. And then we ended up last week with this third conflict with the Sadducees. And uh, they came out with the question, uh, uh, this th- tell us about this uh this situation and they give this ridiculous story although there is a similar story during the hasmonean time period of it happening to someone uh where you've got a, a one wife and she goes through a whole series of brothers i think it's seven brothers and in the the law of moses if a man dies without having children then his brother takes the wife so that she can have a family he produced a child for her so she can have a family. Well, she goes through seven of the brothers. They all die. Then finally she dies. And now they're going to be resurrected. Now, understand this. The Sadducees. Let me erase this for a moment as if I will remember this. This will help you understand the Pharisees and the Sadducees. If we go back to the Maccabean Revolt, uh, 165. And a group of family, a family, uh, uh, Mattathias and his five sons, they revolted against the, the Greeks. They, they wouldn't offer sacrifice. That led to several battles. And this Maccabean family, which was a priestly tribe, a priestly family from the Hasmonean family line. Their, their grand, great-great-grandfather was Hasmonean. And uh, that became the Hasmoneans. They became, in a sense, they were priests, but they defeated the solutions of the Greeks and so they rose to power and began to set up government as they rebuilt uh, Jerusalem, Judea, into a nation, eventually getting to a place where they could make treaties with a rising power in the West, Rome. And this, this, the Maccabees, or the Hasmoneans, became the uh, ruling class. Now, they were priests. They, they were in the line of the priests. But they, because of their power in the military, of having defeated the Seleucids, they also set up the government. So they became the kings. So they forced themselves in, or because of necessity, they became the kings. But they were the priestly family that was now ruling as kings. You're going to have a whole series of kings that are going to be coming from the Hasmoneans. It's a time period uh, up until Herod. Like from 165, you go up to like Herod, you know, rising, you know, 48, 40 B.C. Well, during this time, it's pretty clear the Pharisees who are, they're going to be the conservatives. They're the purest. They're the ones who are embracing the scripture. This is important because Jesus actually lines up with the Pharisees theologically. In his, under, his view of scripture, Jesus, would be, Jesus is not a Pharisee. But Jesus lines up with their view of Scripture. Jesus lines up with their view of the resurrection. Jesus lines up with their view of angels, their theology, because they're both working off the text of Scripture. They're in agreement. So the Pharisees are going to be following what we would call the Old Testament. Genesis all the way up through Malachi. And in that you can see the, the you know, Moses, well, you go Abraham, the people becoming, a, a, the people of Abraham, Moses setting him free. He's establishing the priesthood of Aaron. They come out of the wilderness. They go into the book of Judges, and that's where you run into Ruth, God, uh, David's grandmother, and Boaz, and pretty soon the family of Jesse. David arises, 
and David gets the promise that you're going to have a son on the throne. And this is clearly the kingly line is established there, you know, coming out of Judges, Ruth, you know, in the first and second Samuel. And you have the kingly line. So if you follow the Old Testament, you've got Aaron, the priest, and then you've got the Davidic line, the kings, which is pretty clear in Scripture. No one really doubts that. But the Sadducees, or the Hasmoneans, who were the priests, they wanted to keep this. Now, this, this, is, this is exactly where it comes from. So the Bible explains this. They're going to just accept, the Sadducees just accept Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The rest, that's not really Scripture. Because this introduces, right in here, Exodus, Leviticus, this introduces the priesthood and the authority of the priest collecting taxes and tithes and being in charge of the Temple Mount. Well, then if they cross this line, you start moving into the line of David, and it's like, okay, now, they did not accept that. And so they are going to argue, they're going to now argue a case because they don't want the resurrection. If you go through the rest of this book, you're going to be able to prove the resurrection. And so they're going to come to Jesus. They ask him this question. Now, you understand, this is, this is the problem. Now, in Jesus' day, the Sadducees were the, the upper class. They lived in Jerusalem, the urban area. They had the money. They were the priesthood. And the Pharisees were the conservatives, the purists. They held to the Scriptures. Obviously, they've, got some, they've overwritten. The, the, they've added more to it. Uh, I do have in the notes, if we can go there, and if you wanted to go here, uh, in the book of Acts, remember when Paul came to Jerusalem with the money from the Gentiles to give to the Jerusalem church? They say, why don't you go up to the Temple Mount and offer a sacrifice, you know, uh, uh, take a vow, pay the, f- the, 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 the tribute so that, you know, the, they'll know that you're not against the Temple worship. So he goes, okay, I'll go up there. Well, when he goes up there, the Pharisees see him, and they accuse him of having brought a Gentile in, across into the court of the Jewish men. And a whole riot breaks out. Paul is arrested, taken up into Fort Antony, up on this side. It's gone, of course, there. Uh, and when he gets up there, you know, they find out who he is, and he's a Roman citizen. They're going to bring him before the Sanhedrin. And when it, his chance to talk, the Sanhedrin, the 70 rulers of Jerusalem, they're made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. And Paul, being a Pharisee, knows all about this conflict because the Sadducees only accept five books of the Bible and they want the priests to be in charge of everything, including the royalty, the kingship. The Pharisees are looking for the son of David. Of course, they accept the priesthood. They're still offering sacrifices, but they're more what we'd say the purists. They're following this. Paul, when he is placed, uh, say, you know, if it's oh, 40, 45, oh, no, 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 I can tell you. It's, uh, it's going to be 57 A.D., 57 A.D. Paul appears before the Sanhedrin after that situation, and they're going to hear his case. And, of course, they're all against him. He's a Christian, but he's a former Pharisee. And so he stands up, and he begins his presentation like this. You can read it in, in Acts. He says, I stand before you today because of my, my belief in the resurrection of the dead. And with that, the Pharisee or the Sadducees started to murmur and shout, away with him, he's guilty because it's ridiculous. The Pharisees go, uh, well, you know, that doesn't sound ridiculous. Maybe, maybe uh, uh, an angel or a spirit did appear to him because he had his testimony that the Lord appeared to him, that he'd seen this and he knows this. And so he takes this, and if you read the account, it becomes ridiculous. 
well, it looks like, you know, like our Congress, I guess, today, because they began to argue, holler at each other, and actually broke out in fighting, and they had to be broken apart by the Romans, had to come in and break this, this up, because Paul simply stands up there and says, I stand before you today because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And the Pharisees are like, yeah, what's wrong with that? The Sadducees are like, he's a heretic. And they all just went after each other. And then Paul, they moved Paul out and they go, what just happened? And of course, the Romans are trying to figure this out. What just happened? Well, Paul just said he voted for Trump or something. I don't know. But anyway, that was, that's the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming together. So you get your one, two, three. The Sadducees are asking about the, uh, the resurrection from the dead. And Jesus, of course, if you turn to page of your notes, uh, page 4, uh, chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. I've got a lot of that stuff written out right there. Jesus tells them uh, very excellently, he tells them uh, this. I'm going to read the answer now, chapter 12, verse 24 in the NIV. Jesus replied, after they give this ridiculous story of this, this woman marrying a, a, a man, him dying, then she has to marry his brother, then that brother died, then she had to marry another brother. She marries all the brothers, they're all dead. And their question for Jesus, aha, I got you question. Now, in the resurrection, whose husband is she going to be? Because she's got seven husbands. How is that even going to make any sense? And Jesus answers them, says this, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures? Now, right there, scriptures, meaning read the whole Bible. Don't just read the first five books of the Bible. You don't know. And he, he really, they don't know the scriptures. What do you mean? They don't understand them? No, they don't know them. They've rejected everything after Deuteronomy, they've rejected all of the prophets. They've rejected Psalms. They've rejected Proverbs. They've rejected everything, even the historical books. They've rejected them. So you don't know the Scriptures, so don't ask me these stupid questions. You are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God, which means they were, the Sadducees were, in a sense, the very liberals. They did not believe in anything supernatural. They didn't understand angels the way the normal Jews understood angels. The spiritual realm, they were just almost, you know, make it a very simple statement. They're like the materialists of their day. What you see is what you get. Well, okay, what you see was created by God, but what God is going to do, the Bible says, no man can understand. It's no eye has seen or ear has heard what the Lord is going to do. That's in the Old Testament. That's in the New Testament. We're, we're going to a place that, that we can't even explain. Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. He says, I went into the third heaven, and I saw things that men are not permitted to tell and not, or say. And it's not, I don't think it means he saw it. It's like, oh, shh, it's a secret. He says, I saw things, and yeah, you're going to need Elon Musk or somebody to explain this to you because this is beyond, you can't understand this. I mean, he saw things. We're going to a place that the power of God is going to take us to and do for us that's way beyond the natural realm. I think that's what he's explaining here. You are an heir for two reasons. You haven't read the whole Bible, and you need to understand what God is capable of. When the dead rise, he doesn't even say if, when, or use it. He says when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And that doesn't mean they won't know each other. That means marriage is of this age. There are certain institutions we have in this world that are temporary. They're for this age, and in the next age, they're no longer needed because it's going to be different. It's going to be greater. 
they will be like angels. Now, this statement, they will be like angels, we mentioned last week. Interesting, we've mentioned before, the Sadducees did not believe in, in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. So Jesus, you, he doesn't need to, and this may be an overstatement, maybe reading too much into it, he doesn't need to say anything about angels. But just, to, I mean, almost, I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, read into Jesus what he's doing here. But it, clearly, they do not know scriptures. You have, they haven't read the Bible. They've rejected the majority of the scriptures. Uh, and they don't believe in angels. So he has to bring in here about the resurrection. They will be like the angels in heaven. And of course, they're like, we don't, that's, we don't even believe in angels. We don't believe in resurrection. We don't believe in heaven. We don't believe in angels. And Jesus is giving them all these answers that they can't even use because they don't believe in any of those things. So it almost takes like a, you know, I'll say, takes a cheap shot at them. Well, you know, they'll be like the angels. Oh, you don't believe in angels either. No wonder you don't understand anything. Now, these are, again, these guys are educated. They are part of the educated elite. But they have, they've rejected the Bible. Now, you maybe can imagine a culture that has education and leadership that's rejected the revelation of the Word of God, and, and they're your, your leaders. That's, there, there they are. And so Jesus is, you know, just going at them. Then he says, verse 26, Now, about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses? In the okay, now again, so he goes, he could have used, in fact, in your notes, I've got it typed in here somewhere. Yeah, look on page 5.3. If he wants to prove the resurrection, now it's easy to prove the resurrection in the New Testament. First of all, you've got the resurrection of Jesus. Then you've got 1 Corinthians 15, all about the resurrection. You've got references throughout it. You've got the book of Revelation talking about what it's like in the resurrection, if it's going to be the resurrection of the dead into eternal damnation or the resurrection of the righteous in eternal life. You've got New Testament, it's easy. Old Testament, you've got verses such as Isaiah 26, that's point three, Daniel chapter 2, uh, 12, Psalm 16, Job 19. Job says, uh, I know that I will see, I will... After I die, I know that my flesh will again stand on the earth when I see my Redeemer. So Job was talking, Job, which probably was alive during the days of Abraham. Job probably was in the same generation as Abraham because of his lifespan. You can make that connection. So the book of Job may be one of the first stories, maybe the first thing written down, or one of the first things written down. That's another whole discussion. But even back, Job, who wasn't a Jew because he had his own altar, his own sacrifices, and it was before the days of the Jews, before, before Moses. Uh, but Job writes about the resurrection and standing on the earth in the final days and seeing the Lord. Uh, so he, Jesus could have gone to any of those verses, but the Sadducees would have rejected Isaiah, Daniel, Psalms, Job. It's like, you're not even using the Bible. It, it, they'd be rejecting all of it. But they will accept Genesis through De De Deuteronomy. So Jesus goes to the account of the burning bush, and as we read through this last week, uh, now, verse 26, now about the dead. Further, he rips them right there. He says, you're an heir because you do not know the scriptures. You do not know the power of God. You don't understand anything. You're basically worthless in your theology. But now, about the resurrection of the dead, let's go down to your level. Let's go to your five books of scripture. Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the bush. Now, they didn't have Bible verse. Like we can go chapter, chapter 7, verse 3 or something. They would, have, they, would, they would have sections they would have been memorized in many cases. 
but they would be identified by a subject. Like this would be the, 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 the uh, it says, the account of the bush. And that's what it would be called, the account of the bush. This is the account of Joseph. This is the account of the flood. This is the account of the bush. So Jesus is at best right here, uh, quoting chapter and verse for him, the account of the bush. We would be able to say Exodus and name the chapter and verse. In the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, meaning these guys were alive, say 2000 BC, this is now 1400 BC, but their relationship had not ceased because they died. God, that was their God when they were alive in 2000 BC, roughly, was still their God in 1400 BC, and they were, they'd, been, they'd been dead. So he says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Then he says, you are badly mistaken. Now notice how his, his comments begin. Chapter uh, 12, verse 24, Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures? He ends this, this comment, chapter 12, verse 27, he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are badly mistaken. First he says, you are in error. And now he says, you're badly mistaken. You are making some grievous mistakes. And so that is him answering uh, the question of authority, the question of paying taxes, and the question of the Sadducees by just drilling them. I mean, drilling them if you're in a debate. And you can see, especially with this parable about the vineyard, where he's, he's exposing all of them. You're all under judgment because of the, your leadership. He's defeated all of them. And what is happening here is the people are seeing Jesus win. It's like everything they come, it's like he comes right, he's not flinching, he's not being rude, he's not calling them just names and, and hollering and, and calling them anti, you know, whatever. Uh, he's debating, as you know, I mean, we see this in our culture. When you don't have a debate, you just holler, throw yourself on the floor and roll around and cry like you're you know, an elementary student or something. But Jesus is, is like, okay, uh, you only believe the first five books of the Bible? I can work with that. And here's my point. Next question. And it's like, okay, you want to argue about taxes? Well, bring me a coin. Wow, you've got a coin of the emperor right here with his image on it? The one that says he's God? Well, that's interesting. You've got one. Just give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. But the point is, give to God what is God's. It's like, so he's using their coins. He's using their text of Scripture that they've limited. He's using... Well, they're attacking him. He's using John the Baptist and his authority. And just like he's not going to answer their question, they won't ask or answer his question. And so they're kind of over here going, wow. What, the more we attack, the better he looks. Now, this is where it switches right here. And I, again, Mark does a nice job of it. Um, and you can read in the other Luke and Matthew account also. But this becomes very, I'll just put a plus sign there. This becomes positive, and I, I'm going to ask you to read this and understand this in a positive tone as we go into this next section here. Uh, chapter 12, verse 28. A lot of times you can consider this one, two, three, four questions. I turn the plus sign into a four now. Four challenges of Jesus. But this was a challenge, this was a challenge, this was a challenge. They're trying to defeat him, make him look foolish. This right here, this, I, I, I no longer think this is a challenge. I, this whole tone changes, which indicates, what you're going to see here is Jesus, like I said, is winning. 
How, how, how much so is he winning? So much so that some of the scribes, some of the elite, some of those that have come against him have been in the little, their little group are like, wow, hmm, that's impressive. Uh, well, now, now I do have a question for you. I, sincerely, I sincerely have a question for you. What really should we be doing? What, what is the whole point of this? I mean, we've, we've got all this argument. Even if Jesus walked away, they would still bite and devour each other. It's not like it's Jesus versus them. It, when Jesus is gone, just like you saw Paul, he walks into Sanhedrin and says, I'm here because of the resurrection of the dead. Ah, chaos ensues. The, the scribe is in this mix. He knows, of all of the things I've heard from the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, Jesus is doing, it, the, doing an outstanding job of, of, how do you say it, threading the needle. I mean, he's answering the questions. So he's going to come up and say, and I think this is an indication of what's happening with the crowd and what's happening with some of these leaders. If they've got a hard heart, they're going to continue to resist them, but some of them are seeking the truth. They're going to be like, they're going to, well, here he comes. Here, listen to this. Uh, and I will read this to you before I read it in the, so you can see it. Look on page five. Point one, I say this is a positive encounter between the scribe and Jesus. This is a particular scribe. Uh, not representing any, he, he appears to be coming as an individual. Now this, I, th- I think it's, these are all happening one right after the other. I don't think this is like isolated incidences where they're just weaving it together. I think G- this is just one crowd moving or Jesus moving through the crowd. Here comes a scribe. Uh, the scribe was impressed with Jesus' answers so far and is actually going to press him for more. The question by the individual scribe seems to be honorable. And A, B, C, and D right here. What we're going to read here, it begins with integrity and a compliment to Jesus, for example, seeing that he answered them well. The, the, a scribe is going to see that Jesus answered them well. The, the scribes, the Herodians and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, this would be the Sanhedrin, all these people through, he's answered all of them well. That's what he's, he's not saying, aha, I think I've got an angle that he won't see coming. I think I can, I, I think we can trip him up here with his authority. I think we can trip him up with the taxation. Ah, let's hit him with the resurrection. This guy says, oh, you're, I, you, excellent answers. Jesus takes it seriously and is complimentary to the scribe. He doesn't respond like he did to the Sadducees. Uh, you are in error, and you're in error because you're ignorant. You don't read the Bible and you don't know the power of God. Thus, you are in error. You're in great error. I mean, so, I mean, the Sadducees, it basically calls the Sadducees losers. It's like, don't even ask me a question because you don't even have a Bible. You don't even know God. But this guy, this scribe, Jesus, shows respect for him. See, the scribe accepts Jesus' answer. So when he gives an answer... He doesn't go away sorrowful. He doesn't go away and think about a way to kill him. Now that he answered me, I'm going to now make sure he gets destroyed. The scribe accepts his answer and says, you are right, teacher. Calls him teacher. And confirms Jesus' answer by restating it. He restates Jesus' answer. After he restates Jesus' answer, indicating this is what I've understood you to say, Jesus then compliments the scribe and tells the scribe he is not far from the kingdom. He says, Jesus saw that he answered wisely. The scribe hears Jesus. 
The scribe then reinterprets it and explains what he thought he heard. Jesus sees that the scribe answered wisely back to him and then says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And I think that makes the, the last point right here, the last thing we're going to see today, number five, that, if that's a five, is Jesus telling him what he needs to understand to enter the kingdom of God. But he's going to end up telling this, this scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So here it is right here. I think a very positive interaction with the scribe, which may indicate what's happening to this crowd that's very oppositional from the elite. But there are people hearing just, and th this is encouraging for us. In our culture of people being opposed to the truth, we just keep answering with the truth. And those that have hard hearts are on their way to destruction. Just like the prophets say, those that are going to be destroyed, just go to your destruction. Those are going to be eaten up by the wild animals, go be eaten by the wild animals. Those are going to die by the sword, go die by the sword. There's nothing we can do to help you. But those of you that are open hearts and are looking, we just keep teaching the truth, keep it, and all of a sudden, people are going to start coming out. Now, you may not be able to change the direction. Jesus didn't change the direction of the culture. They were overthrown in 40 years. But many people did come out, and that's our, our job. Obviously, we would like to save the culture. But if we're on the crash course, what we need to do is just keep speaking truth, not throwing little fits and crying and stuff, but just keep teaching the truth and face the, the persecution that will come as these people, as Jesus is going to draw people to himself. But as they come, these people are going to then execute him. One of the teachers of the law, verse 28, chapter 12 of Mark, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Almost it makes him sound like an outsider. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Verse 29, Jesus says, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this, the great Shema. This is, this, the Jews said this every morning and every night out of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now in Deuteronomy, there's only three of those listed. Jesus has four here in Mark. But he basically quotes out of Deuteronomy, this is the greatest. And then he adds to it, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And notice again, uh, their God, your interaction with God, your interaction with man. And there is, they're not equal, but they're listed in a, in a sequence. You've got to have this relationship with God. And then when you have that relationship with God, you have to have this relationship with mankind. In other words, you can't just have number one. Otherwise, you're a mystic. I love God. I just live out here in the mountain. I'm a mystic. Me and God, I love. It's like, okay, you don't really, because if you really love God and you're doing God, you would be then engaging with humanity. Jesus is God. He didn't just stay in heaven and be God. Because he is God and he's doing the right thing, he's going to come down and interact with humanity. So again, they, they, they go together. It's not like this is number one, and then if you want number two, the, the runner-up, it's almost like, it's like you've got to have this as number one, but this really isn't complete until you've got number two also. Uh, so anyway, uh, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Verse 32, this is the scribe. He went out to make plans to kill Jesus. No, no, that, that, that's, this is different. 
he says, well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that, now this is, the, this is now his repeating. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and, and they'll notice he reduces it to three, which goes back to Deuteronomy. And to love your neighbor as yourself, that's Leviticus, is important, is more important than, watch this, is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. In other words, you can say, I failed to love God, and I failed to love man, but I'm just going to go to the temple and burn sacrifices. Okay, the prophets would teach, yeah, the sacrifices, really, you need a relationship with God, and you need to be doing the right thing to your fellow man. And the sacrifices and offerings, it, that, that's, that's not going to just cut it. You're going to have to have more than that. And so he said, that's what he says. Uh, Love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Look at verse 34. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely. What does he, he simply repeats Jesus, but then he takes this, this is the standard, love God and love mankind. If we can accomplish that, that's better than, and now he adds, that's better than all these sacrifices. So he's like, he's seeing, it's like, because the Jews, we just run to the temple. We just run to the temple and just offer sacrifices. Jesus has this guy looking at his relationship with God, his relationship with mankind based on his relationship with God, and that's more important. That'd be so much more important than, than all that's going on here. Jesus says, that's, I mean, that's what the guy added to it. He brought that into the conversation, the sacrifice. This is the first mention of sacrifice and offerings, and the guy brings it in. Another thing that's being mentioned right here is the ideal that God is one, and that, that may lead into this next point five right here in, in just a moment. But the two things is Jesus talks about him being one. God is one. And the guy picks that up, but then he builds on Jesus' number one and number two commands and says that's better than the sacrifices. And again, you can see Jesus being very positive. He answered, he says, he said that he had answered wisely. And then he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And watch this. And there's two reasons for this. And from then on, no one dared asking me any more questions uh number one why would they not dare ask any more questions number one he's going to uh destroy them and, and it's like you're not going to trap him you you ah we think we got you on a technicality ask uh no we look foolish and the other reason they're not going to ask him well, okay we can't beat him yeah, would you guys stop asking him questions? Why? Because every time he, you ask him a question, this, this scribe just steps in innocently and says, I, I've got a question for you. He says, it's like, wow. And the, and the scribe comes to his own conclusion. There's something better than just these sacrifices. Jesus says, it's like, oh. Every time they ask him a question, they're losing ground. It's like, stop asking him questions because he's starting, well, right here. He's winning. He's going to win every question. So we can't destroy him. He's destroying us, and he's making himself look good. He's making us look bad, and the more we attack, the better he looks. You know, all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord type of thing right here. Even the, well, let's nail him on a cross and kill him. Great idea. Boom, now we got the entire church age. It's like everything's going to work out. And so I think when it says no one dared ask him a question, that could be out of fear. But out of fear from two reasons, he's going to make me look bad, and he's just going to get stronger. So just, just go home. Just stop asking him questions. I don't, want him, don't let Jesus talk anymore. Just 
no more, no more. That, you know, uh, a press secretary would say, no more questions, we're stopping right now, and walk out of the room. Because we realize the more we talk, uh, the more we make the other opposition look good and the dumber we look, uh, no more questions, I've already addressed and just walk out. That's what they did. They ended the press conference, and you may have seen that. Okay, here's some things interesting about that, what just took place. Um, uh, I think we've read, kind of pointed out a lot of these things. Point number four, indicate Jesus a positive interaction scribe. Yeah, I think that. And oh, point five is interesting. This is interesting. And uh, several commentators uh, and commentaries point this out that this was this t- this question was actually almost like a uh, uh, a question that you would ask the great rabbi. Uh, is because you've got this whole Old Testament, and you've got all these laws, and it's like, what is, what's the point of all these? We just do all these laws. There's, you know, like 600 and some decrees. Uh, and they'd ask, well, I will show you. They'd ask this question, like, what, what's the point, or what's the greatest? Here it is. Uh, point five, the question, what is the most important, or instead of important, it could also be the first of the commands, this was a common question recorded in Jewish writings. Here's some examples. Simon the Just, this would be the grandson of Jadua. Jadua was the priest that went out and met Alexander the Great. If you remember, he went out, up, they, they dressed up, they went right up here, right up here to this place, right up here, north of the city, about two miles, and they met Alexander and, and ran alongside of his horse back in so he could worship up here. That was Jadua. Well, his grandson, 300 to 273 B.C., right around there, uh, Simon the Just, said, by three things is the world sustained. By the law, by temple service, and by deeds of loving kindness. That's not supposed to be living kindness, loving kindness. So again, you can see right here, you can see a typical Jew, law, that's, that's in the Bible. The temple service, that's in the Bible. But then he puts in here, loving kindness. And loving kindness, that is... Uh, covenant faithfulness that that's that's not like love you know tolerance we all want to be nice to each other loving kindness goes back to covenant love which could be uh faithfulness or you know truthfulness of you know goodwill working together but anyway he he sums up everything with those three points for example uh next one i hope you find these interesting Rabbi, rabbi Hillel, 40 B.C. to 10 A.D. He was a rabbi when Jesus was youth. In fact, when Jesus was in the Temple Mount when he was 12, uh, it's possible that he would have interacted with Rabbi Hillel. He would have been an older man. Uh, it doesn't. That's not a scriptural statement. That's just their timelines cross and locations cross. Uh, a Gentile came to uh, Rabbi Hillel and says, Make me a proselyte on condition that you teach me the whole law while I stand on one foot. Basically, he was saying, I will, I will become a Jewish convert if you can summarize, explain your law to me while I stand on one foot before I lose balance. Meaning, you don't have much time. Sum this up for me. Okay, and he does this. Hillel said, do, do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. This is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. That's the great Rabbi Hillel. And it says, you, you, and Jesus said something very similar. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. Hillel just said it in reverse. and says everything else is commentary. 
So again, that, that reduced the idea of, you know, the Beatles nailed it, you know, love, love, love. Everything else is commentary. And it's not a plug for the Beatles and their philosophy. It just thought it fit. And Rabbi Akaba said, now this is 50 to 135 A.D., so this guy would have been born after Jesus had died. The church had started. Uh, he may, uh, if he had been in Jerusalem, he would have fled the Jewish wars. <laughs> so he, in seven, when he was 20 years old, Jerusalem fell. He said, but you, he summed it up by saying, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the encompassing, encom- excuse me, encompassing principle of the law. Is that not interesting? It sounds like, you know, what Jesus said, but that comes right out of Leviticus. And when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself earlier, that is, he's quoting Leviticus. So Jesus is using Deuteronomy and, the, and Leviticus. I wanted to point this out, and uh, I, this was in a commentary, and I thought it, would, it was interesting. If you don't mind, verse 28. Uh, verse 28 in the NIV, I'm looking at it right here. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? In the NIV, you can see the phrase, of all and commandments, and then asking which is important. So what you have here are these words. You've got commandments. We'll just say commands. But commandments, eh, I'll leave it like that. So commandments, all, and then important. Important. Import. A-N-T. Important. Okay. And this, this can also mean like first, top, you know. Uh, now, this is, again, I am not a language expert. I wish I was. I'm working on it. I'm teaching Tyler some things. So I'm, I'm going to be getting sharper. Because it's like, I'm teaching him what I do not know. What I do not know, what I speak of, I'm teaching. Uh, But anyway, one commentator, you can see it right here in the Greek box there. If you want to read it with me, not read it out loud, but follow. You you can see the the word-for-word translation. you got the chi there at the beginning. That's and. Having come up, one of the scribes, having heard them reasoning together, having seen that well he answered them, he questioned him, which is... Then you see the word commandment, the first of all. And the point there is, you can see that it's a, the commandment, the first, the little letters underneath there, it's a noun and the NFS singular, the F is it's feminine. This is feminine. Now that is, has nothing to do with gender. That is just, you know, feminine, masculine, neuter. Um, and then uh, first, and then the word of all, which is panton, which means all, is neuter. And this is and. So the point being right here, if all is referring to all the commandments, these would have to be in, uh, in agreement. That's what the commentator was saying. The fact that this, the commandments is feminine, this would be, for example, referring to the Jewish commandments of all our Jewish commandments, all in the neuter refers to not all of the Jewish commandments. We've got all the Jewish. You've got all the Jewish commandments. If this was feminine, be of all of these, what is number one? 
But because this is feminine and this is neuter right here, that would mean of all the, of the, all the Jewish commandments, which of them of all commandments of mankind? If, if To go to mankind, this is a different class. This is Jewish. This is everywhere. All. Another category of all. And so of all the commandments that the Jews have, what is the greatest to be applied for all mankind? And which would be now bringing the Gentiles into the picture. What does everybody need to do? An important inference. So that's, that's what is being said there. And so with that being said, apparently this scribe is not asking what is the greatest commandment for the Jews, but what is the greatest commandment that supersedes all that God expects for humanity, including the Gentiles. So he's taking this question, uh, besides just a theological or a debate between the Jews, He's actually looking for, you know, he's looking at the bigger picture, you know, the court of the Gentiles. He's looking at the whole scene. What does mankind, to come here to this temple, what does the Jews have to offer mankind? And then Jesus says, you know, love the Lord your God. And he breaks that down into, uh, uh, there it is, point seven. Jesus begins with the great Shema, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 5. I've got it written right there. It's recited every morning and evening by the pious Jews. Oh, hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then here it is in Deuteronomy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Now, right below that, I've got written what Jesus is recorded in Mark is saying. And he says, all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind and strength. So we can assume heart and soul and then might would be strength. What he adds in there, he separates or adds in there the word mind. So instead of just having heart, soul, and, uh, and strength, he adds in there mind or intelligence. And at the bottom of page 6, heart would be, again, this is one way of looking at it, heart would be the emotions, your, your, everything that you're made up of, you know, your direction. Your soul would be your spirit in this case. Now, a lot of times when I'm teaching the three phases of salvation, we put soul and mind, spirit, soul, and body. Soul, I equate that with the mind. Here, soul, becomes, a lot of times that happens, the soul is an unseen part of you, so it becomes the spirit. So when you've got the soul and mind, soul would be spirit, mind would be your intellect or your intelligence. If you've got soul and spirit together, the soul would be the mind, spirit would be uh, the spirit. But anyway, you can just see that he's added in there separating spirit and intelligence and then you've got heart like a lot of times you say the heart is the spirit you know and the soul somehow you're gonna have to put those together and again i don't know if that's the point i don't want to you know if i was trying to do a, some kind of a breakdown of all that of what makes up a man you know the man the, uh, the inside of a man the the makeup of uh anthropology uh that'd be interesting but the idea here the key is that each one of those begins with See, in front of each of them, it says, all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, all the strength. The emphasis being there, uh, you are a man, then all that you are is serving, seeking the Lord himself. That's the key is all. I mean, if you want to add five or six more words to that, you know, all of your eyes, all of your ears, all of your activities you just, it, just, it, it would fit into there i mean there's nothing outside the key would be there's nothing outside that should not be going towards this direction it should all be focused on god and that's his answer now with that being said 
we come to this last part, and I'm not sure how we, we want to do this, if we're going to get through this tonight. But this, this has to go with these five. These ha- has to go with these five. And this is uh, both, well, it's, it's, a, it's the double-edged sword. Uh, one, two, three. You've got the authority of Jesus questioned. You're going to have the taxation question. You've got the Sadducees and the ridiculous resurrection question. Uh, in here, you're going to have the vineyard parable, you know, Jesus pointing blame that, hey, these guys are leading you the wrong way. Then you come down to the positive where you've got the scribe asking Jesus to, you know, sum up. What, how would you, all the leaders have summed it up. How would you sum it up? And Jesus is basically saying, one, love God, and you can't complete this until you can take that and you can love man or you can love others. This right here is the set and it is a sequence lot of listen this right here of the shortcut in our age right here just love people and now you're into you see love people and you don't know how many pastors i've talked to if you're going to be a pastor you got to love people now, not you're into marketing now you're marketing okay do you love people or you love having people? Do you actually have something to offer people or are you using people for your power base? And that's, Jesus doesn't say love people. Jesus says love God. All you've got, love God. And then if you're doing that, that's going to lead you down to here. You're going to now love your neighbor as yourself. You're going to try and get them in the same place you are at with the relationship with God. You're not interested in what they can do for you. You're not interested in numbers or members or money or power uh, or influence. You're interested in this right here, God. And once you understand God, you're coming after your neighbor saying, how can I get you to have the same thing that I've got and help them you know, with their situations? Again, I, I, that's, that's the sequence. You've got to have that sequence in there. And that's why, that's why I think the scribe says, you know, you've answered wisely because many religious people, now on the flip side, religious people, I, I just I don't like people. I just love God. Okay, good. Have you met him? Yes. What are you doing about it? Well, I just spent a lot of time in prayer. Now, again, not, and that, that, that's, you know, that's part of I'm not making fun of that. But it's like, okay, yes. And what are you praying about? What are you doing? Just praying that I get to know God more. Well, yeah, Paul prays that your eyes, your understanding, be in light, that you know God better. But what, do you feel like there's something missing it's like nope i'm going to join a monastery i'm just going to sit out here and just grow old and love god see god in nature and sunsets it's like okay you've you become a mystic you're you're out you need to have boots on the ground you eventually got to come here and love your neighbor as yourself and so that that's a huge huge answer and you can see if you just have the mystic or you just have the political religious leader who wants a lot of power with the people and uh, God is just like the cover for them to get the political power. Now, with that being said, this number, the next step right here, he told the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Before Now, they, they don't dare ask him any questions. They don't dare ask any more questions. But hey, everybody, before you go, I got a question for you that will solve all of your questions. Now, I, I added that. He doesn't say that. Uh, While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, all these teachers teachers up here that have all come to him, 
They all teach, except the Sadducees, I'd have to look into that, uh, that the Messiah is David, is going to have a son uh, who's going to be the Messiah. And so he's going to be a man. And so Jesus says, uh, how is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? I'll change this. Christ is the Greek word. Christos is the Greek word. We translate it Christ, which means the anointed one or the rubbed one. Rubbed means rubbed with oil, which is the Hebrew word. We translate the Hebrew word Messiah. This is the Christ. But he is supposed to be the teacher of the law. Teach this. Uh, and everybody knows that, yes, yes, the Messiah. In fact, you talk to Jews today uh, that are not Christians, that are what we'd maybe say Orthodox Jews. Again, there's branches, just like we have different groups of Christians. Uh, and, not, you know, a lot of Christians, like, you, you know, your church is dividing because you're going to start accepting all this woke culture stuff. It's like, okay, whatever, that's, that's not where we're going. Same with Jews. There's different types of Jews. But say an Orthodox Jew that's following the Scripture, they are waiting today for uh, this Messiah, this Christ. But he is going to be a great world leader. Uh, now, uh, I've got to pick this up next week. He's going to be a world leader. And Cyrus, as we know, Isaiah calls him, God says, my anointed one, Cyrus. Now, Cyrus would be an example of an anointed one, a world leader, that was not a Jew, but he was anointed by God to do God's will. So the Messiah could be another Cyrus-like person, just a world leader that comes in line and follows God and does what God called him to do. In this case, Cyrus sent the people back to rebuild the temple. That's Isaiah. And sure enough, Isaiah and Ezra's day show, or not Ezra records, but Ezra shows, or Cyrus shows up and sets the people free. Daniel records that. But also, it could be a Jew, which would be in the line of David. So you, you could have two groups. One is just looking for a world leader, like just a general man. Another would say, no, 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 it's got to be the Messiah. It's got to be a son of David. It's got to be from the tribe of Judah through the lineage of David. But it's going to be a man, and it's going to be a world leader that's going to gather Israel back together, win some battles, give them permission to help build the temple right here, and establish Israel as the center of the world. And they're looking for this human leader. Now, when you hear a a Jew explain this, as I heard it, it's like, you're, we, we call that the Antichrist. <laughs> it's like, you're, you're looking for the Antichrist, a man who's going to get you build the temple, make a treaty, have world power, and then benefit the Jews. It's like, yeah, and you're going to sign a seven-year treaty with him that he's going to break at the halfway point and start persecuting you because that's not the Messiah. That's, that's an imitation. But they're actually looking for this now there's no way uh in in this line of thinking that a jew is going to is looking for the sky to break open and jesus to come back and land on the mount of olives uh that's 
that that's another whole that's more of a that that's jewish that's how the jewish text but that's the christian return of the lord you've got to have the lord come the first time for him to come the second time they're still looking for in a sense the first coming or what would be the only coming so jesus is answering that that this question right here this is how is it that the teachers of the law say that the christ is the son of david right here they're saying in in his group they're not saying there's gonna be another cyrus they're saying it's going to be david's son who's going to be the christ a man from the lineage of David is going to come and be our leader. He's going to be the Christ, and he's going to fulfill all those verses, just like the disciples were thinking that Jesus, when he's on his way in on Palm Sunday from Jericho, from Caesarea Philippi, all the way in Galilee, they thought he was going to overthrow the Romans. They thought they're bringing swords, they're trying to get their positions, and they're thinking that. He says, now, how, how is it that, and I'll just read this to you and then I'll quit, how is it that the teacher of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? Well, the, the, we know how that happens. It's, it's in the Bible. But yet David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, David, with the Holy Spirit leading him to write and say these things, writes, the Lord, this is Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, if you look on the last page 7, point 3, the Hebrew reads this way. Uh, in Psalm 110, the Lord, or Yahweh, declared to my Lord, Adonai, these things. So Yahweh is speaking to my Lord, my uh, 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 master, and says to Yahweh, says to my master, that, that's a better way of understanding it, Lord, that means master, my master, sit at my right side and sit there until I make your enemies a footstool. And next week we'll go to Psalm 110 and look at that. And the problem is right here is, well, let me just read what Jesus says. He says, David himself calls him Lord. How the, David says, Yahweh says to my Lord, Master, or my God, or we probably put capital G there, says to my God, my Messiah, sit at my right hand. He says, this Messiah, and they had an understanding that the Messiah was related to God, you know, some, somehow manifestation of God, you know, they had that concept. He says, I, I, he says, listen, he says, this doesn't fit your theology. You can't answer this question. It's like going two directions. He is a son of David, a man who's going to rule the world in the line of David, but as surely as he's the son of David, Yahweh himself, as David is speaking, David is calling him his master, his God. So David's son is his master. David's son is his God, recognized by Yahweh. To, it's like, he says, can anyone explain this to me? And that would be a nice ending for when he says to the, the, the scribe, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Let me ask you a question. Can you answer this riddle? And, if you, and, again, and again, as a Christian, you can. It, Jesus, God, you know, the, you know uh, Isaiah answered it. Emmanuel, God with us. And uh, we'll look at that a little bit more next week. But Jesus is just hanging right out. He just ends this whole debate just by hanging the answer right there in front. All you've got to do 
is understand it. And they're trying to wrap their mind around it. And of course, the disciples have began to understand it. But there's the, there's the crux of the whole thing. He is going to be the Messiah. He's going to be a fully man, so he can pay for our sins. He's going to be a man. He's going to take man to the fullness, like we see in Hebrews, quoting Psalms. But he is, in a sense, the son of Yahweh. He is God himself, which goes back to what Jesus was saying to the scribe, the great Shema, the Lord our God is one. There's not two or three of them. It's like Yahweh is the Lord, who is the Messiah, who is God. There, it's... It's all one. And again, it gets into the mystery of the Trinity. I'll pray, and we are done. We'll pick this up next week. Father, we thank you for the chance to look into these things. We thank you for the, the testimony we have in the Scriptures and the, the evidence that we have just in our own lives and experiences we live with you. We ask that we may, again, understand these things and, and, and serve you with all of our heart, soul, our mind, our intellect, but also that we would be able to have a relationship with you and manifest that with love for other people, serving them and living a selfless life, just as Jesus taught his disciples to be a, a servant, a servant of all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, thank you for being here.